So I grew up in a pub in, in County Leash and my dad was uh, an entrepreneur. He had a, a, several businesses, but you know, at one point he would have run a pretty large farm with a pub and a shop. And he also had a, a pork business called Greenville. So he was extremely entrepreneurial. Quite the serial entrepreneur. Yeah, and, and I made a decision probably very early on, I'm gonna start my own business. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. When you've got a strong pedigree of business in your family, setting up your own is often the only way. The question is, what to do? I did the property thing and realised that it definitely wasn't for me. I was still picking up the computer magazines. I'm still, you know, reading about all the, the elements of technology which interest me, and I'm flipping right over the property pages in the paper. Well, this is the Architects of Business, Joe's weekly series of interviews with leading entrepreneurs in partnership with EY, Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Ty Genwright, and today we'll be hearing from Kevin O'Loughlin, for whom early access to a computer set him upon the path to success. I was the only kid in the class who had one at home. The teachers had never used one, so I became the expert even though I knew, I knew how to do nothing on it. Nothing. <laughs> but I was the expert because I'd seen one before effectively. At the turn of the millennium, IT was a fast-changing sector and there was plenty of opportunity. But it wasn't the only horse that Kevin backed. Like many, he poured surplus cash into property and failed. I didn't understand property. If you go into something to make money, I, I, my view is you'll never win over the people who are in it and know everything about it. It was 2006 when he chased his dream of setting up by himself. Nostra promised to save clients money, but in that era, not many were interested. People were so busy making money that they didn't necessarily want to save money. So it was difficult actually to get in the door and, and win some early deals. But soon, saving money was on everyone's mind. Today we'll hear about the lessons learned, the fingers burnt, and Kevin's diligent regime of self-care. Kevin, delighted you could uh, come and talk to us today. Thank you for joining us uh, at Joe. Um, I guess some people might think of your field, IT, outsourced IT, as a kind of a commodity that anyone can, can do it, and it's the same no matter who you get it from. How do you go about making sure that Nostra actually is, is seen as different to that? So that's an interesting uh, question, I have to say. So, yeah, and, and, and I suppose there are a lot of people in the field that we're doing, both in Ireland and globally, and it's a, it's a ballooning industry. Um, and I suppose when we, when we started out, we didn't necessarily start out as an outsourced IT provider. Our original plan was around consolidation and making IT footprints smaller in companies. And that kind of evolved over the years where, where we effectively found a demand. Um, and I suppose one of the key things that Nostra is quite unique in is, is we hire... Uh, very specifically hire the right people so not necessarily technical experts but people who have a who have a really good personality really good at managing a customer expectations really you know kind of the bedside manner type type person uh, and then we make sure we train them on whatever skills they need in, in the role. So you're saying um, you hire relationship people rather than technical people? Pretty much, yeah. Now that's that's probably an extreme example but but my dad had a philosophy which was you know, you, you can you uh, you can't hire a, a good person and train, or you can't hire a good person and train to be a bartender but you can't hire a bartender and train them to be a nice person. Um, so that was his, his example in simple terms. And do you um, go straight on in there with that as your pitch to new clients? 
so actually we hire people that you can get along with and we'll get inside your head and and, and we'll get the job done not necessarily because I, I don't think it's a you know people necessarily understand the value of that and um, but what we do get is we get a huge amount of new business and referrals from existing customers and what they always say about it is our team are top class is, is it a challenge to kind of live up to that promise at all times when, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of like an emergency service in some degrees for, for, for companies that rely on their IT working well, something goes wrong, they call you up. I mean, is it a challenge to live up to that all the time? Oh, no, it certainly is. I mean, and again, like in emergency service, you know, the, the managing pressure and, and being good under pressure is a key part of it. Um, but yeah, like we would manage probably in excess of 3,000 servers and 25,000 desktops all across the world at the moment. And, and sometimes any one of those going down, even a mouse failing in a boardroom 10 minutes between a major board meeting or a server falling over 20 minutes before a, a new site goes live, you know, they're all mission critical, urgent and, and can be stressful. How but do you sleep at night then, Kevin? <laughs> very well, actually, because <laughs> I, I have a great team around me. Um, so, yeah, look, you know, I, again, it, it, in all these scenarios, it's about building the right infrastructure that's going to work and, and understanding that when it goes down, it's our job to respond. You know, it, it's not possible for anyone to build an infrastructure that will never fail. And, you know, when you have a good relationship with a customer, when there is a problem, you respond, you deal with it, and, and you have the right people that have the skills to do it. Take me back to the to the beginning, to, to, to little Kevin, hmm. when you realised actually IT was, was, was your thing. Yeah, so I, I, I suppose I'd... I'd probably go all the way back, I think, to 1989 or 1990. Now, one of my brothers would probably correct me in the year, but uh, my dad bought an Amstrad 30 at the time. Uh, so, again, in the late 80s. That's early, a computer uh, for, uh, the, that, for that, the Generation Y people uh, listening. It, 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 it is, but I think it's fair to say if anyone sat down and looked at it today, they probably wouldn't describe it as a computer. It would be more useful as a bookend or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was just a fascinating piece of technology. And my eldest brother became, you know, quite good on it quite quickly. And I I was looking from a distance and then Tesco or, or Quinsworth at the time uh, had a thing where you you know you go in you pack bags and you, you pick up the vouchers and you got the schools collected them I remember that and then you yeah and then you got a computer for the school which is an IBM PC at the time and uh, and one came in and, and we were the I was the only kid in the class who had one at home the teachers had never used one so I became the expert even though I knew, I knew how to do nothing on it nothing <laughs> but I was the expert because I'd seen one before effectively so this is at the age of of, of how probably old? ten, nine or ten, yeah, that kind of age. And the 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 the, lear the training you had at the Amstrad at home, so you're saying it yeah. didn't quite prepare you for the IBM, but well, you were well. I I hadn't done much on doing. The I hadn't done much in the Amstrad. To be fair, I'd looked at my brother doing things, but I really didn't have the, the not anywhere to turn it on. I knew it about a disc in. Well, that was about it. Are you saying you, you blagged your expertise at school? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Badly, in fact. I think the first function I did was to format a disc, which I thought was to load a disc, and, uh, and ended up wiping the math program <laughs> that we got. <laughs> But then, obviously, you, you were picking up skills as you went along just by just by trying it out? Yeah. So, again, you know, I had that very small step ahead and, and I became the person who probably had to learn it quickly, in my view, uh, so as I could actually appear to continue to be the expert. And I was going home getting advice off my brother what to do, going back into school and applying it. And then that kind of followed all the way through in secondary school. Um, you know, I, I uh, the, the school had no computers when I joined and uh, they were looking for advice as to what to get. So again, you know, I, I would have helped IT them IT consultant process. Kevin came in. Yeah, exactly. I even did a business cards, KOL solutions. Are you serious? Yeah. 
And it's that type of ambition, I suppose, that puts you onto the the track you uh, well you got on. Yeah. What was it? Just take me back a little bit though, and remind or tell me when you kind of realised that you really liked it. I mean, there's one thing kind of being having the responsibility foisted upon you, but it's another thing kind of actually saying, actually, I like this. Yeah. So, so that's a really interesting one, actually. And, and I would and, and I take it to my leaving search year. So I had done loads of, again, loads of computer work all the way through secondary school. Um, and again, in, you know, I did my leaving in 97. And, and at that point, there was still very little knowledge in computer, like in computers. Most companies wouldn't have even had corporate email addresses at that point. Um, and I didn't know. I was looking at my career path, and uh, and you know I knew, and everyone associated me as the computer guy. So I went and did a computer applications uh, course, and it just wasn't for me. Like software development wasn't for me, and and I didn't establish for a number of years after that that actually I love computers and I had a huge interest in them, but I probably had more of an interest in building them and selling them and the business side of it as opposed to the technical side of it, um, and and that I was a long time learning that that. Uh, the difference between the two um, and and I suppose even from my technical point of view I would have stopped being an engineer in 2000 when I was 20 only three years and at that point I moved into the sales side and what I love doing was solving a problem somebody telling me you know I want to do this and I'd say well you know you can do that on the computer or you know here's how you do it on the computer and actually the the solving solving a problem and selling a solution became became my thing. At what point did you realize that you know people always talk look at technology of the future and say this is going to change everything and most people in that moment in time don't quite understand it or don't quite comprehend just how much it's going to change things mm. um what were your evangelical moments where you're kind of telling people about how much computers and technology were going to change the world and change their lives yeah, well, I suppose I probably again all, all the way through my teens, you know, it was it was an exciting thing to look at computers, but I wasn't necessarily thinking about how much of an impact they were going to have. Um, I would say, uh, you know, I, I got my first job in technology and I worked for a couple of years as an engineer and, and I started seeing at that point technology advancements, which I thought were really, really impressive and really clever. And, and it's probably the second tranche of change in IT, you know, so you had the initial where everyone got a computer. And then I suppose I came in at that point where then you're moving to the next stage of how can we get more out of them? So the first major thing for me would have been cloud computing. Um, so in 2007, when we started our business, uh, I just saw it as, as absolute sense, you know, and, and at that time, uh, companies like Microsoft were encouraging businesses like ours to build our own infrastructure and share it between our customers rather than selling every customer an infrastructure. So, you know, in simple terms, rather than everyone spending 10 grand on the solution, I spend 40 and sell it to each customer at, at six grand each. And effectively, I get 60 grand rather than 40 grand for an infrastructure and everyone saves money. Um, and it, it made a lot of sense in every respect because what a customer could get and be part of was much larger than they would be able to afford to buy on their own. So while they're on a shared infrastructure, it's better than what, what they would ordinarily get. Um, and I saw that as a huge sea change. So we were, you know, the first company in 2007, we signed up with Microsoft to build our own, what, you know, what was at that time called HMC 4.5, which commonly known today as Office 365. So Nostra built our own version of that with Microsoft in 2007, launched in early 08. And then Microsoft announced in mid-08 they were doing it themselves and we had invested a quarter of a million in our solution. They were investing, I think, five billion in theirs um, and they were cheaper. Uh, so we made a very hard decision of shutting down our infrastructure and moving everyone to Microsoft's platform when it came out, um, which was a financially painful decision. 
but it was the right thing from a customer point of view. When you look back on getting into this field, was it apparent to you that there would be so much money to be made out of it at the time? And was that part of what drew you to it? So, uh, no, I would say money wasn't uh, wasn't the key motivator for me. Um, so I, and, and I would still say, you know, again, to build a business and, and, you know, we've, you know, we haven't made an enormous amount of money to date. Um, you know, I think in the future we will we will do extremely well. But the cost of building the, the type of business we have is is not inexpensive, um, you know, and it's it's a very people intensive uh, industry and business um, and and to get the right people cost money and you know and therefore you can put your margins under pressure um, you need significant scale for it to work and we're only really getting to that point now so we'll do about you know a little over 10 million euros this year um, and, and we're seeing that growing kind of 25-30% year on year um, and we've just done an acquisition uh, of a company called Emit which will add about 2 million to our revenue for the next 12 months um, and and you know it, it requires scale to make money so, so what got me in was you know solving a problem I probably had the knowledge from a very young age and because I have a historical understanding of IT, for me, the problem to solve was quite easy. I'm interested as well in, in, in how you, the businessman, evolved, you know, from having this uh, almost foisted upon you persona of the IT guy at school, you kind of came to realise that actually you're more into the, the business end of things and the sales and, and, and the relationships that you say Nostra kind of uh, prides its, its, its or bases its business model on. Um, did you ever look at at other businesses, other ways of of of, of making a living and, and making your money work for you? Yeah, so uh, I did, uh, unfortunately. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I yeah. smell so, a story so, here. Yeah, so uh, so yeah, I I uh, probably like lots of people in two thousand one and two saw the property market going where it went, and and I I effectively invested all of my earnings into property and bought bought a number of, of places and uh, and I sold some of them to start Nostra which was a, a great positive in 2006 good time to get out but I kept some of them which wasn't a good idea um, you know and, and that was certainly a painful experience to carry those over the last seven or eight years and, and thankfully they're back uh, functioning now um, I also diversified and, and uh, I suppose I set a personal objective a number of years ago where I made a decision I, you know the type of person I am I, I just enjoy helping people and that and that's just something that, that I like to do and I set a lifetime target uh, to help a million people in my lifetime right so uh, what that manifested itself as at the time I wasn't sure but I said that's something I wanted to do so I ended up going into all sorts of different businesses at the at the bottom of the market I suppose in 2010 I got involved in some gyms the chiropractic clinic you know some some random things which ultimately are super businesses um, and and I understood them, and I was I was a user of that type of service, um, but you know you have to you have to know one thing really well, in my opinion, and IT was what I knew well. So in me diversifying into those areas, I just took my eye off the ball on my own business, which had an impact on that. And once I learned that lesson, I got back, and I was like, well, how can I how can I use my business to help people? Um, and I do that predominantly by making sure that our team are extremely well looked after. If people have challenges, we help them through it. And we have a very staff-centric organisation. And I suppose we want to build on that and, and to grow it out. And same with customers and other people. Talk to me a bit more, though, about that foray into into the property market. Because it's something that lots of people will will identify with. I suppose anybody that, that, that did buy around that time, hmm. and of course the crash that, that, that followed... Um, 
not many people had the, the the spare cash to buy. How many properties was it that you? About six. At six. One point, yeah. Not yeah. many. Yeah. Not many could have put that much money into into property. Yeah. Um, did you make any mistakes, or was it just you know were you dragged down with the the you know with with everybody else? I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I suppose my view and and one lesson I have is I mean, why was I doing you know in property? I was in property to make money, and 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 I didn't understand property. Um, you know, I think. I think a lesson that I certainly learned is if I'm getting involved in a business, I have to know an awful lot about it. And, and you have to be passionate about the industry. If you go into something to make money, I, I, my view is you'll never win over the people who are in it and know everything about it. So, you know, I made a decision a number of years ago. Technology and cars, two things I'm passionate about, I'll invest in, in those types of industries. But outside of that, absolutely not. So in property, look, you know, I, I bought some some places and, and, and the way it worked back then, you know, you buy a, you buy a house in you know off the plans a year before it's built by the time it's built it's worth 100 grand more you're financing 90 percent, so you're getting 60 grand check the day you buy it and then you buy another property out of that check so you know it was it was a silly time and it was very easy you know it just i i would you know i remember even putting a deposit on a property and two weeks later this is for me to live in two weeks later i went back and said no i don't want to live here and the price had gone up by fifty thousand, and my deposit was 4k and i'm like okay well i need to buy that now because there's no point walking away from a 50 grand upside and that was just a madness of the times you know it was 2003 and and literally week to week if you went to a new development on a monday and a week later you went back it was up by five grand or ten grand per house and that was every week so you know it was it was just easy crazy times gosh it's uh, interesting to hear them brought up again um but then you decided to 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 Pack that in, as it were, yeah. uh, and and take whatever some of the money before the crash and put it yeah. into Nostra. Yeah. And um, what was it that you you wanted to achieve with Nostra that you weren't achieving with uh, the the job that you had at the time? So I think uh, from a from a probably a very young age. Um, so I grew up in a pub in in County Leash, and my dad was uh, an entrepreneur. He had a, a, several businesses, but you know at one point he would have run a pretty large farm. We'd a, we'd a, a pub and a shop, which ma'am, in fairness, would have probably run more than him, uh, although he wouldn't admit that. Um, and uh, and he also had a, a quite a large uh, pork uh, business called Greenville in Carlow. Um, so he was extremely entrepreneurial. Quite the serial entrepreneur. Yeah, and we you know, have him on. Yeah, and <laughs> and he was always on the phone in the car, and you know, he, he was just it, the definition, in my view, as a, as you know, as a, as a kid, as the 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 entrepreneur, you know, the 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 guy driving the Merc, you know, all of those things, I suppose. And I just admired him. Um, and, and I made a decision probably very early on. I mean, it wasn't even a decision. I just assumed that that's, you know, that that's what everyone did. You went up and you set up your own business. So, uh, you know, even when I when I had a job, uh, you know, back in the early 2000s, you know, I would have been very open to say at some point I'm going to I'm going to start my own business. Um, you know, and I considered reasonably considered an MBO at one point in the business I was in. It's um, a management buyout. Management buyout, yeah. And, um, you know, it didn't happen. Um, and uh, it was only talk. It was never anything, a, a significant conversation. But, you know, when when I knew that wasn't uh, wasn't going to happen for me, I needed to go and do my own thing. But you were in a high paying job, you know, you had enough money to, to splash out in a few houses. Did any part of you or any person kind of say to you, hang on, you're you're riding quite a wave here. Don't take any stupid risks. Yeah. So probably if I had told people <laughs> that I was thinking of leaving, they might have said that. But, you know, I, I, I'm somebody who typically when I make a decision, I make a decision and, and I, 
you know, I'd probably make a lot of decisions on my own, which is something that as we scale as a business, I'm trying to pull back from and, and take more of a group think. But at that particular time, I don't think I told a single person before I decided to leave. I just, you know, made a decision. It was a Sunday morning. Uh, and, I, and by Sunday afternoon, I was, I was, uh, I had, I had handed my notice in. You must have had the confidence, though, that you know you're in uh, at, well, at that stage was still kind of an emerging sector, hmm. um, like in the wind behind you. Did it feel like it was going to be uh, a sure thing when you, you you decided to branch out by yourselves? No, I, I you know, I, I suppose being honest with you, it didn't. Uh, and and also, I will say, you know, I I left without a plan. Right. I didn't, you know, I decided I was going to travel for a while, try and figure out what it is I wanted to do specifically. Uh, again, at that point, I had a decision, you know, do I go the property route um, and or do I go the, the, the uh, technology route? Um, and I and I genuinely hadn't done, hadn't made So you weren't committed to IT when you decided to leave? No. And in fact, I, I did the property thing for a period of time for probably three or four months um, and, and realised that it definitely wasn't for me. Um, and, and when I say property, I was I was uh, you know looking at potentially uh, joining my brother who had an estate agency in Port Leash, and actually selling and potentially building and developing uh, properties. But it, it just again once you get in, I was still picking up the computer magazines. I'm still you know reading about all the the elements of technology which interests me, and I'm flipping right over the property pages in the paper. You know so. <laughs> So you, you you followed your heart. Followed my heart, yeah. And yeah. what did your heart tell you about what you wanted your company to be and how it was going to be different? Was it that relationship aspect or was there something else at that yeah, stage? Yeah, you know, I, I think it was a big part of it. You know, I, I had worked in an office with probably 40 or 50 other people and, and you know, like anything when you're working in, in a business, they all become your friends. So one thing that I, I wanted was to build a reasonable sized organization where you know there were there were certainly lots of other people in the business um, and and I wanted to develop myself uh, as, as a as an entrepreneur um, I didn't fully understand what an entrepreneur was at that point you know and, and I think one of the biggest challenges that I had is my assumption having been a sales manager and a service manager in an IT business that I knew it all and reality is it only kicks in very shortly after you start your business how little you know um, and unfortunately I had a seven or eight year learning journey um, which I'm still on but you know the first seven or eight years it was just mistake after mistake um, so I suppose for me I when I started and when I got into the business I really didn't have a clue where it was going to go it was I need to open a business I want to have people working with me get the right people we'll find a vision and a journey and we'll go on it Kevin, stay with us because still lots more to talk about on the Architects of Business. Kevin will be talking to us about the mistakes that he did make surviving the financial crisis and what he's learned about the importance of clocking off. You're listening to the Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Visit eoy.ie to find out more about the programme and this year's finalists. Get in touch. Mail us on the Architects of Business at joe.ie. Kevin, it was it was two thousand and six when when you started. Um, just a few years later, obviously, history would be recorded with the the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Um, what were those early years like? How was it getting so, it off the ground before? Yeah, so so we started December two thousand six, right? And when I say we started in December, we we signed a lease on a building and painted it in December, and that was about the uh, the height and, and wrote our business plan. So we officially opened for business second of January uh, two thousand seven. Um, so the first year was a whirlwind. You know, we had uh, 
two months of, of, you know, going out trying to knock on doors, meet people, you know, convince people to have a conversation with you. Um, and, and the challenge of that time actually was uh, people were so busy making money that they didn't necessarily want to save money. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're talking to somebody who would save on 500 euros a month, it wasn't a number that excited anybody in terms of the saving of moving to a new provider or moving to cloud technology or whatever. Um, so it was difficult actually to get in the door and, and win some early deals. So uh, probably about March or April, we got our messaging right and we started winning business. So like we did a million euro between March and December, um, which was ahead of our, our, our first year objective. And, and that really came from, you know, selling quite large solutions to some big Irish uh, companies. And, and we did, we were in a, a space of virtualization, which is having less servers than more in simple terms. But ultimately, we were we were saving companies money and sometimes, you know, six figure sums, I mean, quite substantial amounts. So um, we went all the way through the year. We were very happy where we were. January, February, March of 2008 were phenomenal. I think we did 900 grand in the first three months of the year. And then ultimately the uh, the world end uh, ended for us. Um, so the big thing was technology leasing was a huge piece. So we would sell a solution. The banks would provide a technology lease for it. Um, and, and that lease would, would uh, ultimately mean a customer rather than spend 100 grand on the solution, they'd spend two grand a month. Right. So it became an easy enough. Again, in those times, it was easy to sell. So all the major banks stopped doing technology leases in April and May of 2008. And then we were going into places and saying, we need a check for 100 grand. And they were going, look, we'll we'll put the decision on hold. Then you had Northern Rock, you had Lehman Brothers, you had all those different things that happened around that time. And effectively, our prospect list built, but nobody bought. So like we did 900 grand the first three months, 450,000 in the last nine months of the year. So we effectively fell off a cliff. Um, and it was an extremely difficult time. I mean, you know, we were, we, we had gone from 300 grand a month in, in revenue to about 25, 30,000 a month. And some months we had, you know, five grand in revenue. You know, we had built our team up to 10 or 11 people. Um, so like in the first two years, we lost about nearly, nearly 500,000 euros. Um, and we were profitable by the end of the first year on a monthly basis. So the majority of that loss came from April to, to December of the second year. And again, you know, each month your prospect list is building, the customers want to buy, everything was all positive. We, we weren't losing business to our competitors, but ultimately it was a nine month point until we said, right, you know, they, they're not going to buy or they're not going to buy for another couple of months and we now have to make some changes. So we had to make some redundancies and cut salaries and do all those things in December of 08. December 08, so that being somewhere in the region of nine months after you first started seeing uh, something was going wrong. Yeah. Um, those redundancies, the, the, the salary cuts, what was it like when you actually had to to deliver that news to the people that affected us? So, um, so it was an interesting one. You know, we, I, I fully expected I'd have to close the business. And uh, I rang two or three customers, small customers, and asked them, could they meet me for a coffee? And brought them in and said, look, here's my problem, right? I've got several issues in the business. And uh, and what do you think we should do? And um, I think I need to close. And they said, well, you know, why don't you go on and, and, you know, do you need everyone? Why don't you make two people redundant? Why don't you ask the staff, will they take a 20% pay cut? If they do, then you can continue to trade and you'll get back close to a break-even scenario. 
and then go to all your suppliers and ask them will they will they give you longer terms to pay the debts that are outstanding and i suppose it was an ambitious plan but when we went and met suppliers they were in the same boat with lots of people and those companies were closing and the money was being written off so at least we were offering them a scenario where they might get it back so they all accepted to my surprise all the staff backed us, you know, they they really jumped in behind us and said, look, you know, we understand, we see this, you know, my friend has been let go, my brother's after losing his job, you know, and, and they could see all the news, so they were aware. And they all backed us. And I mean, I had some people say, look, I don't even need to be paid for December. You know, just, you know, we had, we had incredible support from the from the team. Um, and really from that point on then, we, we spent all of 09 just, just treading water. We took investment at the end of 09, which really cleared our, our legacy and paid off everyone who needed to get paid off. Um, and then we, we kind of had a couple of years of just, again, struggling to, to get by. And in 13, we kind of cleared the last of our legacy debt. We cleared all of the, you know, the history that we'd been through financially and we had breathing room to grow and it was just in time, I suppose, for, for the economy coming back and, and we've done really well since then. So like we've grown from since 13, we probably did 1.1 million in 13 and, you know, to do 10 million today. So in that period, we've multiplied by 10. It was really a case of, of, of battening down the hatches. And I, I mean, it's a case, literally, it sounds like you weathered the storm. Yeah. Um, when you look back, was there ever any point where you thought, no, we can't get through this and actually closure is inevitable because it sounds like you kind of hatched a plan and it actually went relatively smoothly. Yeah, well, I wouldn't call it smoothly if you <laughs> lived through it, but, you know, it was it was just incredibly tough. I mean, it was it was day to day, week to week. I mean, there was long periods when I didn't take any money out of the business. So you're literally just taking out money for petrol. Um, you know, I had bought a, a, a car which was expensive, uh, about a Porsche in 2008, and I had more finance on it than it was worth quite a considerable amount more than it was worth in that, you know, all those cars were worth nothing. So I couldn't sell it because I couldn't afford to write it, write down the amount of money that was in it. And yet it was unbelievably uneconomical, so I could hardly afford to drive it. You know, and I remember occasions when literally I would have to stay at home for a couple of days because I didn't have enough money for fuel to go out. You know, so it was it was a very, very difficult time. Um, and I think without the support of the team that I had, both financially and everything else, I mean, they, they were all, they all believed in what we were trying to do. Um, and, and really, I... I in 2009 uh, I said right you know I need to get my health right I need to uh, get fit which I had never really been in my life um, so I got fit and healthy said I'd you know face it all head on more energy um, and really focused on my own health and my own well-being and I think that then operated right throughout the company. It's an interesting point in history at which to have had that kind of health epiphany mm. that when, you know, the proverbial has really hit the fan in terms of how the company's performing, suddenly you discover exercise. Yeah, well, you know, uh, and probably the person who, who got me there was uh, John Boyle of Boyle Sports. So, uh, you know, I don't know if, if, if people would know his story. I know he was he actually one entrepreneur of the year at, at one point. Um, you know, John, uh, he was probably 52 or 53 years of age when I first met him. And John used to train every morning and uh, and he would talk about, you know, the importance of eating right. And, you know, he'd be he'd be uh, at his age uh, driving up and down the country and, you know, have his 
packed lunch and, and making sure it's all good and healthy and he'd go to the gym four times a week or five times a week and he'd be you know looking at people who'd be half his age with half his energy uh, and his view was you know to be successful you have to get your your own health right and I took that message you know uh, and, and I suppose I, I very much operated from there um, and and it, it certainly for me proven to be correct you know when you're when you're under most pressure you know, a, a session in the gym is is one of the best ways of, of dealing with it and getting it out. Um, but also, you just have more energy to take on a problem. And instead of look, I'll deal with it tomorrow. You get I'll deal with it now. So, what changes did you make? I did a lot. Um, so I started going to the gym every day. So I, I trained and still train every morning at, at half six. Uh, I started eating much better than I used to. So I very rarely would eat pizzas or any of those things now by the way anyone who knows me looking at me going you eat loads of chocolate chocolate is fine <laughs> <laughs> so chocolate's so chocolate is one thing you are still allowed yeah, give up yeah. the pizza but stick yeah. with the so chocolate I, I'm not a, I'm not a you know like I would eat as many salads as I can in a week I'll, I'll eat plenty of meat uh, you know so I'm not you know I don't have the cleanest of diets by any means um, but I would be quite healthy and I'd be quite fit and I would I would see that as a hugely important element of of my day uh, and my routine and um, you know and I think having downtime is critically important so you know uh, it's something I don't know when I mean, you could call it lazy or whatever but I've never I've never worked late it's just never been a thing that I've done you know so I, I would have always been an early riser in into the office early and, and leave at half five and go home and try and switch off where possible so I mean obviously once a month you'll end up writing a proposal that'll go on till midnight or whatever but you know they're few and far between and, and always have been so that's quite at odds with what um a lot of other uh you know people who start businesses might say that you have to put in you know 12 16 18 hours a day sometimes to to get it off the ground yeah and and i'm sure i'm sure it does and again i mean i would have been criticized by my own team for 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 not doing it but you know our office you know, except for the people who work late, uh, would would actually clear out at half five, quarter to six every day. You know, it's, you know, my view is if if everyone uh, can't get their work done a day, we need more people, and there's something wrong. Uh, and also, my view is if you actually relax in the evening, take the evening off, you're far more productive the next day. And and again, you know, in my case, if I go to the gym in the morning, I have a much better day than if I miss the gym. Um, so you know, if I don't go to the gym, I I genuinely find I don't get as much done, I'm not as focused. And it, is that one kind of aspect of the, the whole principle of kind of working smarter rather than working harder? What other kind of uh, Kevinisms are there on, on, in 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 that field? Um, so no, I I think so. I, I'm I'm uh, I'm very much a people person. So uh, you know, I I, I struggle with uh, some of the I suppose the challenges of of. Uh, of modern business so you know if you take um things like video conferencing which is a, an absolute necessity and and in our office we have four or five video conferencing pods and and we we work them extremely hard every day with our customers um but you can never get away from a face-to-face -face meeting and a cup of coffee and and a shake of hands with somebody um so you know probably one of the the kevinisms is i i do about sixty thousand kilometers a year eighty thousand maybe even traveling between customers and i'd spend a huge amount of time on the road meeting people face to face and i think that's massively important personally um you know as we're scaling as a business that's becoming more and more difficult um i i suppose you know and the other thing i, I i'm a huge fan of meditation um and uh and i would probably again at the real bottom of the recession when things were just incredibly tough you know you didn't have enough money to to 
clear your wages you you know you've the banks uh, in telling you they're concerned you've personal guarantees that are at risk of being called in you've suppliers that you're not able to to pay on time you can't buy kit to sell right so you had lots of challenges and uh, and I learned at that point about meditation and uh, and I've done meditation probably five times a week since 2009. And what's your approach? How do you meditate? Well, I, I do a number of different things. Andrew Johnson, uh, who's a, an app on the on all the app stores, I, I really like, and I've probably been using that one for three or four years. Uh, lots of the team would use Headspace, um, and uh, you know, obviously there's loads of them at this point. Um, but you know, even even uh, mantra meditation, I find extremely extremely useful and and, and valuable. So, well, where do you, do you do you go to a special room, or do you just do it in your office, or do you have uh, an office? I don't I, know. Yeah, no, I do have an office. Uh, no, I don't do it in the office. I have glass windows at the front. So. <laughs> you don't want to yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I'll, I'll I'll find a room in the uh, meeting room in the office, close the door, and do do it probably mostly in the car. So you know, if I'm if I'm twenty minutes early for a meeting, I might pop on a meditation. Uh, at night time virtually every night I do one and then quite a lot of mornings you know if I get back from the gym to the office early enough I'll do one again in the car outside so yeah do do as many as I can in a week so I'd probably do maybe six hours over the course of a week of meditation and what does it feel like when you've you've you know come out of a, a session as it were well, well, for me, you know, I suppose if I don't do them, what happens is I think of the, you know, you're constantly doing 70 things that you need to get done. And and it's very hard to get structured and you're in the middle of one thing and you're thinking about something else. And, and for me, what meditation does, it just slows down my mind and actually allows me to sit down and focus on what I'm doing and get it done and then start the next thing and, you know, draw up lists and, you know, just, just the basic things. And maybe they come natural to most people, but for me, I, I need a little bit of help from from uh, an app as it mm. turns out these days yeah we all do there's yeah. an app for everything yeah pretty much and what about kind of doing new things as it were um i mean you mentioned there the the the, the great advice you gave on things like security what about things like you know automation are you in that field and and, and i just wonder what road you think there's left to travel in terms of the the, yeah. kind of the digital revolution for, yeah. for, for doing business. Yeah, so I suppose, look, it, it's a constant evolution, right? So if I look at technology today, um, you know, and where it is, everyone has their computer, we log in, we have our applications that we run, um, and, and more and more uh, technology is getting more and more straightforward. So, you know, you know, uh, take an iPad as an example. So you don't need an iPad or a, a technology person to set up an iPad, right? If you get an iPad, no matter who it is, even a, even a five-year-old can take it out of a box and ultimately get it set up and functioning, right? Uh, the five-year-old might need someone to help put the password in for the internet, but that's about it, right? Um, and technology is becoming more and more locked down. And I suppose when we look at it, where, you know, where in five years' time that the industry is going to be, the reality is, our, our view is, there will be less and less of the work that we do today in terms of putting in PCs, configuring them and managing them because they will become more and more iPad-like where the user can just take it out, plug it in, it'll work. More and more of our applications are going to be app-based, which again require very little input from us. So where we would see the industry going is we will become advisors and brokers and we will literally, you know, again, deal with business owners who have a technology problem and we'll literally be bringing, you know, solutions via apps, via iPads, via whatever, and making sure that all their data is secure because, again, if all your data is on your iPad and you lose it or, you know, a person brings it home, then they have all the company data in their hands. So we have to, we have to look at where that 
that piece evolves. So I it's think all in the cloud. It's all in the cloud. Oh, there's no. There's and we've a lot of clouds in this country. A lot of clouds in this country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. A few clear skies, but yeah. uh, clouds are good. Kevin O'Loughlin, thank you very much for coming in and talk to us today. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today on the Architects of Business. Thanks to our guest, Kevin O'Loughlin, our producer, Patrick Hohey, and all of the team here at Joe. Our programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. And next week, you can tune in for our special edition with all the highlights from this year's awards ceremony. I'm Ty Genreich. Thank you so much for being with us today, and we hope to see you next week. Bye-bye. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland.